reading this morning is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the first verse. It can be found on page 875 of the Pew Bible. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dis dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous will, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to Luke chapter 16. If you're visiting, we've been in a study in the gospel according to Luke for a year and a half. Uh, and uh, a little over a year and a half now. Uh, and we've made it to Luke 16. Luke 16, as I uh, said in the during the announcement period, when you first look at it, you say, what is this? What, what, what is this? Uh, at least that's what I, when I was going to preach through it for the first time, I looked at it and wanted just to go on to 17. Uh, but as I said, it's become one of my favorite chapters. I love this chapter. Uh, and I will give you a hint because I want you to read it this week. It's a continuation of chapter 15. In chapter 15, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. And he was either speaking to the Pharisees or he was speaking to his disciples about the Pharisees. Every word in chapter 15. 16 is just a continuation of it. He's speaking. The subject is the Pharisees and how they have warped the faith. Uh, and uh, every verse in it 
the one about marriage that just comes out of nowhere or divorce that comes out of nowhere. He's really speaking to the Pharisees. And we'll look at that next week. So that's that's what you need to know as you look at chapter 16 this week. Look at it in that light. Now let's pray together. Father, we bow before you as your priests. It's the one time in a week when we're not praying as individual priests, but when uh, we're praying all together. You've called us each, you called us all to be prophets, to in some way, shape, or form take your word to the world around us. You've called us all to be priests, to come before you for the world around us. And so we come this morning thanking you for each other, thanking you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have prayed for us and held us up before your throne. Our Father, this morning, we pray for Yvonne Ellison, Dana Osborne's mother. Our Father, I pray that you would bring healing you would take away the pain. But most of all, I pray that you would draw her close to yourself. Whether you know what she needs physically and spiritually. We ask that you would meet those needs. Bless Dana. Draw her close to you and comfort her. We pray for Doug Hay this morning. That you would bring healing, physical healing to his body. We pray, Father, for Shirley Kenyon. Most of us do not know her. We know her only as, as Tyler's aunt. But we pray that you would meet her physical needs, meet her spiritual needs. Father, show her Jesus Christ. We pray for Priscilla Turner, that you would give her grace and strength for these days. For Jim Bennington, for Billy Griggs, bless them, give them strength. Our Father, we pray for Chelsea DePriest, that this baby would be born healthy and well in your time, and that she would be healthy and well. Our Father, there's countless needs other needs in this congregation right now. Each of us could stand up and say, I'm concerned about this or I'm concerned about that. Our Father, we pray for each other. We pray for our marriages. Bring healing where healing is needed in families, between husbands and wives, between children and parents. Father, where there needs to be confession, that there will be confession. Where there needs to be repentance, we pray that you would bring repentance. Where there needs to be comfort, bring comfort. Now as we open your word, 
John Sartell is not able to speak, to preach, so that it will make any difference in our lives. Our Father, you know that this is not religious rhetoric on my part. You know that I know this. And I know that this congregation knows it. And so we cast ourselves upon your grace and your power and your mercy. And we ask that once more, we would hear your voice in this room, that you would speak to our hearts. When we leave here in a few minutes, may we know that we have heard from you. In Jesus' name, amen. In which future are you investing? I love listening to Jesus teach. Think about it. He is the incarnate son of God. When you read these parables, we tend to think that's a parable. That's the son of God speaking. No one ever spoke like him. Whatever word he said was absolute truth. He could not speak anything but that. I love listening to his stories. He's real. Even though he was the incarnate son of God, he was incarnate. He lived in a fallen world. And he used graphic life in that fallen world to speak to us. Some of us don't like that. Some people don't like that. They want a polite Jesus who never used inappropriate terms in his stories. They want Sunday school stories that are nice and sweet, but don't get down to the muck and mire where we live. One time when Jesus was speaking about the second coming, he wanted to give the image that his people would be gathered to him. The picture is he's returning and his people would just come to him. But he used a graphic image. It should read, in the King James Version, it should read, wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. He was saying, when I return, it will be like vultures going to a carcass. The King James translators did not think that is a fitting image for Jesus to use. Now, just think about that for a minute. Jesus, you shouldn't have said it that way. He's the Son of God. You shouldn't have said it that way, Jesus. So they changed the word vulture uh, to eagles. There were the eagles together. Well, in this passage, why am I telling you that? In this passage, many folks don't like, don't like Jesus telling the story of a thief, an embezzler, and then commending the embezzler for his ingenuity. Many have tried. I listened to sermons about this, and it's really humorous. As ministers, here's the Son of God speaking, and they try to change his words. But you can't change what Jesus said in this story. Well, what's the story? A landowner had a manager running his business. He was a very wealthy landowner. He discovered that the manager had been cheating. He called him into account and said, your history but I need to know how much you have cost me. Prepare the books to be audited. The manager knew his future there was over. So what was he going to do next? This is all he had ever done. 
He said, I, I, I'm not fit to do manual labor. He said, I'm too proud to beg. So he called all the businesses that owed something to his owner. It was against the law to charge interest in Jewish culture. So like if you had, if you, if your debt had been 80 bushels, they would just add bushels to it to take care of the credit. That was their way of doing it, to take, take care of the interest. So the manager called in the creditors and got them to pay only a percentage of what was owed. Look at verses five through seven. So summoning his master's debtor one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil, he said. Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write down 80. In this way, he made the creditors indebted to him so that when he was fired, he had friends who would take care of him, who would look after him because he had saved them a lot of money. Now, Jesus did not commend his playing loose with the books, but he did commend the manager's ingenuity in preparing for what was coming, for the calamity that was coming. He commended the man's shrewdness in preparing for the day that he would be let go. Jesus was saying, you better be shrewd about how you invest and you plan for the future. That's why the title. What in which future are you investing? Because that's what this parable is about. In the parable, Jesus gave investment advice about how we spend our lives. That's exactly the opposite of the advice that we get from the world. But before we break down this, this parable, there are two concepts that form the very basis of this parable. And, and, and if you're going to really look at this parable, you've got to understand these two concepts. It's not difficult. The first concept is this. God owns it and I manage it. That's it. The concept that we are managing what belongs to someone else. Nothing we have. I don't care this morning. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. If you the shirt you have, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. The house you have doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Everything you have. Which one of us is going to touch any point in time in our life and say, that's my time? Doesn't belong to God. It belongs to me. That's my button on that shirt. It's not God's. We would not say that about any point of time in our lives. We wouldn't say that about anything in our lives. What's the point? Whatever, whatever I'm doing in any part of any day, I'm managing God's property. Now, there's a whole world out there that has no concept of that. They need that concept. They think it belongs to them. They think they're self-made people. God owns it. I manage it. That's the first concept. It's a basis for this parable. The second Concept is, I must give an account. The concept of accountability. God has said, you're stewards, and there will be an accounting about everything. Time, money, everything. So in this parable, Jesus advises his stewards, and he gives them investment advice. He's saying, John Sartell, 
say, Mike Atkinson, whatever your name, he's saying, you're managing my portfolio. That's what God is saying. It's not your portfolio. It's my portfolio. And he's giving advice. He said, this is how I want you to invest. it." His teaching is exactly opposite, just like in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. He, he just turns everything that the world says upside down and says the opposite. Well, that's what he does here in this parable. For instance, one, the world says, be ingenious in seeking material success in this world. And Jesus says, be ingenious in preparing for the next world. All the focus in the, the investment advice that we hear from the world is, you know, invest wisely for this world, for here and now. Look at verses eight and nine. The master commended his the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That is so confusing. I can't, the ESV really messed up there. The, the translation ought to be make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus was saying, the world is very shrewd in seeking its monetary success in this world. He's saying, Peter, James, John, you should do well to be as shrewd in seeking success in the next world. That's what he's saying. It's just that simple. The focus of the world's investments are right here, right now. He says, you better start thinking further out than that because there's a next world that's far more important. On October 25th, 1978, Stanley Rifkin entered the lobby of the Security National Bank in Los Angeles. If you're a banker, you may know about this. He took the elevator to the wire transfer room. He had been there before. He was a computer whiz. He walked right in unchallenged. This was a tightly guarded room where hundreds of millions of dollars were translated or transferred daily through the Federal Reserve Banks all over the world. As he talked to the people in the room that day, they knew him. He was a computer consultant. They gave him the routing instructions. They gave him the transfer routines, the day security code. Well, in the middle of the afternoon, Rifkin left and, came, and then he phoned back into the wire room. And he said, this is Mike Hansen on International. Okay, the office number, 286. Okay, what's the code? 4739. There was a pause. If you got the code wrong, she would hang up. But she said, okay. Then Rifkin told her, the bank is Irving Trust in New York City. is to pay Wolshad Bank, Zurich, Switzerland, Ten million two hundred thousand. Okay, what's the inner office settlement number? And Rifkin was stumped. He didn't know the number. Let me check. I'll call you right back. He phoned another number at the bank, pretending to be from the wire room, and he asked for the settlement number. They gave it to him. 
He called back, gave him the settlement number, and the clerk typed his order into the system. That day, Stanley Rifkin pulled off the largest bank theft in United States history to that point. Two days later, he picked up $8 million in diamonds from a representative of the Soviet Union. Raw diamonds were easily sold and couldn't be traced. He then traveled to Luxembourg because the custom officials were notoriously slack. And there in a hotel room, he emptied all the diamonds out on the bed and covered the bed. By the way, he was never put in jail for that. Discovered it, but they lacked proof. But he tried it again, and they caught him that time. If you do not admire, you have to look at that and admire the ingenuity and cunning of Stanley Rick. If you don't, you just don't understand what he did. He was a crook. He was a thief. But he, he demonstrated originality and genius in making money in this world. And that's what Jesus thinks. Jesus says, that's the way the world is. And it's all about the 8 million in diamonds. It's all about the 10 million. Jesus was saying the world is very shrewd in seeking its monetary and success goals. You would be well to be that shrewd, that cunning in preparing for the next. We need to hear this. How many of us I just laughed about this. How many of us have ever equated the genius and energy we use to be an excess in business with the genius and energy we use to seek his kingdom? All of us have life. All of us have breath. All of us have so many years upon this earth. All of us have so much energy and time and money. Where will that energy, time, and money be spent? Now listen, I'll tell you. If there's nothing after this life, we should be shrewd in spending our energy, time, and money on whatever satisfies us here and now. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If after this life, there's another life. If our life continues, if after this life we will give an account to God, then... <laughs> We should be shrewd and cunning and smart in the way that we prepare for that eternity. In fact, that's what this life is. That's what Jesus is saying. That our life here, what we do, what we do this Lord's Day, what we do tomorrow when we go to work. I don't care whether you're on the football field in high school or basketball court. I don't care whether you're in the classroom. I don't care whether you're changing diapers at home, whatever it is. How we look at that and how we do that in our lives. It's all about preparing, either for this world or for the next. In other words, you know, this man was making friends with, with the debtors to his boss, to the owner. He was making friends so that the question for us, have you made friends with God? Are you at peace with him?
Has the way you have spent your life been an investment in eternity? The world says be ingenious and seeking worldly success in this world. Jesus said be ingenious and preparing for the next world. Secondly, the world says it is how much you have. Jesus said no. It's what you do with whatever you have. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And who and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Some of us would say, you know, John, I really don't have that much. This doesn't mean that much to me. It doesn't pertain to me. And Jesus said, oh, yes, it does. He says, if you can be trusted to handle pennies, just those everyday little things, if you can be trusted to handle that, you can be trusted to handle millions. If you spend pennies wrong, you'll spend millions wrong. It's not how much you have in anything. It's what you do with it. We're going to come to Luke 21 in a few weeks. And, you know, it's about the widow who, who gave the pennies, the mite, a little bit. There were these trumpet-looking things that, as you entered the temple, and people would put their money in them. And the Pharisees were very, very, very wealthy. All the Pharisees were. And Pharisees were not poor people. They were, they were very, very smart and cunning with their money. And they made a big show of their giving. And Remember, the widow comes, and you want to say she put in two pennies. But she didn't even put in that much. She put in what was amounted to one-fourth of a penny. That's all she had. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said to his disciples, she gave more. She gave more. He was commending. Think about that. He was commending We've talked about her for thousands of years. She gave one-fourth of a cent. Thousands were given that day. But Jesus said she gave more. Why? She was being faithful with the pennies. She didn't have much. She gave all that she had that day. The world says be ingenious in seeking worldly success in this world. Jesus said be ingenious in preparing for the next world. The world says it's how much you have. It's how many toys you have. Jesus says it is what you do with whatever you have. Thirdly, the world says this world is of the greatest value. Jesus says my kingdom is of the greatest value. Look at verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth or in the worldly wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Jesus is simply saying the true riches, the, the true riches are in my kingdom. That's where the significance, this is just preparation. If we've not used what God gave us in this world in a holy way, why would he entrust us with the weightier and holy matters of the next? There's a story, and I'd forgotten the story. 
And I'm so glad that I ran into it this week because it really, it really fits here. It's about a, a cardinal during the Reformation. He was a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. He was a high-ranking cardinal. His name was Satellite. And Satellite was a powerful man. And he had tried to coax uh, the city of Geneva, the city fathers of Geneva, back into the Roman Catholic Church. That was a Protestant center where John Calvin was. And he had tried to coax them back into the Catholic Church. And he became curious about the great John Calvin. He had not met him. Didn't know him. And so Cardinal Satellite took off all his cardinal robes, laid aside everything, dressed in regular clothes, and he goes to Geneva. And he stood in front of the simple house where Calvin lived on Cannon Street in Geneva. And he was just blown away. He did, did the powerful, great John Calvin, did he live in, in such a small house? You see, Satellite and the other cardinals and other bishops, they lived in great palaces in Rome, had servants. And so Satellite knocked on Calvin's door. And Calvin himself opened the door. He was dressed in a simple black robe. In a blue satellite, well, he couldn't believe it. Did the great John Calvin answer his own door? Did he not have servants? And why was he dressed like this? When Calvin died, Pope Pius IV said of Calvin, quote, the strength of that heretic came from the fact that money was nothing to him. You see, Calvin was investing in another world. That's not a bad testimony from an enemy, is it? That both Satellite and Pope Pius IV would look at him and wonder at his simplicity. The world says being genius and seeking material wealth in this world, Jesus says being genius and preparing for the next world. The world says it's how much you have, Jesus says. It's what you do with whatever you have that matters. The world says this world is of the greatest value. He says no. No, there's a greater world coming. And then fourthly and finally, the world says be religious you can be religious. You can, it's hard to be religious. But don't let religion interfere with your business and with how you actually live. Jesus says, in all of your life, there can only be one God. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Either, a simple way, simple way of saying it, either your money, whatever you have, your stuff, your toys, your life, it will either bow the knee to God, or you'll create a God that will bow the knee to all your stuff and to your money and the way you want to live. Either our money and our lives will be controlled by God, or God will be controlled by our money.
I've preached a lot of sermons, hundreds of sermons, hundreds and hundreds of sermons. Been a minister in the Church of Jesus Christ. Some of you sitting in this room are elders in the Church of Jesus Christ. You're deacons in the Church of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that God controls our money. Doesn't mean I've got it right. Doesn't mean that we've got it right as officers. The Pharisees were hyper-religious. They make us look like religiously. They made us look like kindergarten students. But the love of money control their lives. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed them. Just like the world today would have heard this sermon and said, yeah, right, get ready for the next world. And they would have sneered at it. They would have sneered at the idea that these were good investments. Jesus, what do you know about business? You're, you're a traveling rabbi. You're poor. You're going to tell us what to do with our money? During the Crusades, some of the knights and royalty paid mercenaries to go fight for them. These mercenaries were usually pagans. And this was a great, supposedly Christian crusade. And so they demanded that the mercenaries always be baptized. And these pagan mercenaries would go down to the water to be baptized, and they would take their swords out of their sheaths, and they would hold them up out of the water. You weren't going to baptize my sword. You weren't going to baptize my right arm. What do we hold out? Say we we say, let's you know Jesus. You stay in church on Sunday. Don't pay any. You know I'll take care of my business. You stay in your world, Jesus, and I'll stay in my. See, that's what baptism is. Baptism is an anointing. In the Old Testament, baptism began with the anointing system in the Old Testament. And when you anointed something to be used in the temple, you were setting it aside for holy use. When we're baptized, when we come to, I'm a sinner, and my only hope is Jesus Christ, and we're baptized, we're being set aside. That's what baptism is. We're being set aside for holy use. We're to be about. His kingdom. And yet, consistently, I look at my life and I'll have to say, you know, that doesn't look baptized. It doesn't look anointed. Not today. I want to hold it out. I want a God that will bow the knee to what I want. Jesus says that's not wise to invest that way. We come to the table this morning to celebrate our redemption. That we've been redeemed, that we've been bought by the blood of Christ. Look at Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 
whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Listen to me and we're done. You said at the beginning that whether we're Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter. If we have it, God owns it. From the buttons on our shirts to cars, whatever. If you're a non-Christian, God still owns it. You could point to your and say, that's my rib right here. And God would say, no, I made that rib. It belongs to me. You may not acknowledge that, but that's what Scripture teaches. And we're all like that. But that's not what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, it not, you not only belong to God because he made you and he sustained you. You belong to God because he bought you with his own blood. There was a little boy, 10 years old, and even from his earliest days, his parents could tell that he was, he was going to be uh, good with his hands. He loved working with wood and loved working with anything that he could mold. And even when he was little, he'd build these cars. When he was about 10 years old, he built a boat, and it was a beautiful boat. Didn't look like it had been built by a 10-year-old. And there was a stream near his house, and he would, he would take it out and, and, and put it in a stream. And just walk along, and here was his bank. But one day there was a lot of rain. The water got up. And he took the boat out, and it got away from him. And he couldn't catch it. And off he went. He looked and looked for days for that boat. He couldn't find it. One day he was in town with his dad. They were walking down the street. And they walked past a pawn shop. And there in the window of the pawn shop was his boat. He screamed. He said, look, Dad, there's, there's my boat. The dad did what any dad would do. He went in. He bought the boat. Came back and gave it to his son. And the little boy took the boat and he hugged it. He says, boat, now you're twice mine. That's what this table says to us. That's what God says to us. It didn't cost him a thing when he made me. When he redeemed me. When he bought me from my rebellion. From my selfish way of living. From my self-centered way of living. When he bought me for eternity. It cost him his son. He paid a price. Let's go to the table and celebrate our redemption and prepare for the next life.